0: Tonight on NBC.
1: Well, everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands. Thank you. You're all fired.
0: Based on an inspiring true story.
1: Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated.
0: One doctor will break every
1: rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need.
0: To inspire a revolution.
1: Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors.
0: Again. From the network that brings you This Is Us. New Amsterdam. Tonight on NBC.
2: This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good.
1: From the Podglomerate, you're listening to The Feast. I'm Dr. Laura Carlson, and I explore the history of food. From empires of sugar to lunch counter-revolutions. Whether it's mom's home cooking or opulent hundred-course dinners, food has fueled politics, technology, religion, and more. History is full of food, and on each episode of The Feast, we're bringing you the meals that made it. Last week, we brought you the story of an epic royal feast from one of Europe's most enduring legends, King Arthur's Round Table. There were peacocks, plovers, and porcupines, not to mention a hefty amount of wine. We then traveled back to the days of Beowulf, tracing a boozy battle theme back to the 8th and 9th centuries in the British Isles and Scandinavia. Today, We're going back in time to enjoy a meal at another royal court, one just as full of epic and legend as any Arthurian story, but whose incredible impact can still be seen and felt and celebrated around the world today. You can't exactly say that about Arthur's porcupines. Now, this meal takes us to the eastern Mediterranean and the Middle East, to areas today that include Iran, Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, and Azerbaijan. Although they're separate countries today, with their own rich traditions, languages, and culture, this area of the world once was united under the vast, sprawling empire that was Persia. Now, there have been more than a few great empires throughout history. So you've got the Romans, the British, In the Americas, you've got the Aztec and the Inca empires. There's the Mongol Empire of China, the Mughal Empire in India, the Zulu Empire in South Africa. And that's just naming some of the most well-known. But arguably, the oldest and longest-lasting of all these massive empires, the one that really set, you know, that empire bar pretty high, was the Persian Empire. At one point in control of territory that spanned from Egypt to India, and from southern Russia to the Indian Ocean. That's a serious chunk of land. And the Persians were not folks to trifle with. Formed roughly in the 7th century BC, the Persian Empire was one of the most highly developed civilizations of the ancient world. They gave Alexander the Great, among many others, a run for his money on the battlefield— But Persia was also known for having highly sophisticated philosophical schools and religious traditions, including Zoroastrianism, one of the great world religions that in particular had a significant impact on early Christian thought. Their highly developed network of roads rivaled that of Rome, and they were responsible for a collection of trade routes that would eventually become known as the Silk Road fostering ancient international commerce the likes of which had never been seen before. But all that is ancient history. Or is it? Today, millions of people still identify themselves as Persian or as having Persian ancestry. And Persian traditions and holidays, thousands of years old, are still celebrated regularly every year throughout the world. And perhaps no tradition is as beloved as or as epically celebrated as that of Nowruz, also known as Persian New Year.
0: I think it's the most uh, important event for all of us, all of, like, Iranian people, because it's uh, the beginning of the spring, so we call it Nowruz. It begins at the first day of the spring, and it lasts for 13 days, and we celebrate it worldwide.
1: That's Mernoush, or Nushi Zamani who was born in Iran, but who has lived in Vancouver, Canada, for the past three years. Nowruz, whether you're in British Columbia or Iran, is a pretty big deal. Combining food, dancing, there's some fire jumping involved, as well as colored eggs. It's a huge, weeks-long celebration of the return of spring.
2: It sort of just symbolizes the beginning of growth and new things happening. Because if you look at spring, you have... Flowers coming in, you have blooms coming in, so it's like everything's newing. Um, so it's kind of like that, just with the renewal of everything in nature, we celebrate the sort of new year and the, a new day starting in our life. Um, my name is Kimia Ziafat. Um, I'm currently in second year biology. I'm the VP external at UBC Persian Club.
1: Kimia has lived in Canada since she was 14, but as a student at the University of British Columbia and as vice president external of the university's Persian club, Noruz is just as big a deal on campus as it is in any family home.
2: I feel like at UBC, since a lot of us are students, uh, we don't, um, uh, you know, we live on campus and we don't live with our families. A lot of Iranian students um, are living alone without their parents. So this really gives them an opportunity to feel as
1: The UBC Persian Club's annual Nowruz celebration is their biggest event of the year, featuring music, dancing, photo booths, and of course, a Nowruz table, known as the Haft Seen, which come from the Farsi word for seven and the letter S. Now, if you think our King Arthur episode was full of words beginning with P, you ain't seen nothing yet. So
2: that's basically a table where we put Seven things that start with letter S, like their name in Farsi starts with the letter S. And we put seven of those on the table, along with some extra things like uh, mirror and candles and uh, like food. Uh, Some foods, their name doesn't really start with S, but we still put them. And sweets and pastries, just really giving the
0: table that sort of light.
1: The Nowruz table is just one element in Persian New Year celebrations. If you were to combine elements of Halloween, Easter, Thanksgiving, spring cleaning, Christmas, May Day, as well as December 31st, all in one, you're getting a little bit closer to just how many ways there are to celebrate this millennia-old tradition.
0: Before our New Year and it's the last Wednesday of the year, and we call it Chashambesuri. So we lit a large uh, like bonfire and jump over it. And we say that uh, I give all of my sadness and like sickness to you. And I take your energy and like happiness uh, for myself. Um, people believe that the soul of their ancestors will come to their houses. So they clean their houses and they lit the fire to just leave them in the house. <laughs>
1: But of course, there's also the food. Lots and lots of food. And not just on the Norus table.
2: Um, there is one that's very popular, and it's our um, sort of herb uh, rice uh, with fish. And the name actually starts with S2. So that's called Sabjitolo and Mahi. So Mahi means fish. And then Poyo means rice. And then sabzi means basically herbs, like green herbs. Usually we have this thing in Iran. It's called, it's called herbs. For So it's herbs specifically made for that rice that uh, people, it comes ready. So I think it's just a mixture of a ton of different herbs. that just mix together and then you put it in there and it makes it look really, really fresh. Of course, some people, my mom always puts saffron. Saffron is a big part of Persian dishes. So we just put that in there, depending on part of Iran you're from.
1: Beyond fish and rice, For Noru's, there are also egg dishes, soups, meats, pastries, bread. It's a full few weeks of good eating. But where does this tradition come from? How did the Noru's table, the fire jumping, the food come about in Persia? Many cultures have some kind of celebration of springtime, because who doesn't want to welcome the return of warmer temperatures and greenery after long, dark, gloomy winters? especially up here in Canada. Every year, I can't wait to see the end of snow. Now, details about the origin of a holiday over 3,000 years old understandably tend to get a bit fuzzy. So today, we're going to focus on just one out of the many possible origin stories of Persia's Nouruz. These stories come to us from a text that's not nearly as old as 3,000 years. But it's still pretty old. At the same time folks were writing down the first of the big King Arthur legends in France and England, right around the 10th or 11th centuries, other writers to the east, in areas like Khorasan, a center of Persian culture in the medieval world, were committing ancient legends to parchment and paper, often for the first time. Legends that were already a thousand years old or more, which spoke of great, powerful Persian kings who lived for centuries at a time. Kings who were responsible for introducing humanity to skills like iron-making or horseback riding. And so it was that in the 10th, maybe the 11th century, a poet by the name of Ferdosi wrote an account of these great ancient kings, a text he called the Shahnameh, or the Persian Book of Kings. Now, by any account, Ferdowsi wrote a long book entirely in verse, similar to classics like the Odyssey or the Iliad. And in the Persian Book of Kings, you can find everything, from the creation of the world and its four elements, earth, air, fire, and water, to the creation of humanity itself. But the real body of the text focuses on 50 great leaders of Persia, 47 kings, and three impressive queens. And, at least according to Ferdosi, we can thank one of these kings, King Jamshid, one of the earliest and greatest of all Persian kings, for creating the festival of Noruz. Now, Jamshid, as kings go, was pretty impressive. According to Ferdosi, Jamshid introduced Persia to helmets, swords. He taught the Persians how to weave and sew clothing. He commanded angels and demons. He showed people how to make perfume, um, also how to sail. And most importantly, at least for our purposes, Jamshid was also responsible for the invention of wine. But we'll get to that wine stuff in a minute. For the moment, let's focus on Noru's. Even in Ferdowsi's time, Jamshid's reign was considered ancient, even legendary history, occurring in a distant past when humans were still new on the earth. Ferdowsi described these early kings as responsible for how the world worked, for example, why we have silk and linen, how humans know how to ride horses. Jamshid was also the reason why society was organized as it was, why some folks were soldiers, why some were farmers. And, according to Ferdosi, at least, King Jamshid was also responsible for creating the very festival of New Year's. From a translation of the Shahnameh by Dick Davis, here's how Ferdosi explains how the holiday began. Jamshid constructed a throne studded with gems and had demons raise him aloft from the earth into the heavens. There he sat on his throne like the sun shining in the sky. The world's creatures gathered in wonder about him and scattered jewels on him and called this day the New Day, or "Noruz." This was the first day of the month of Farvardin, at the beginning of the year, when Jamshid rested from his labors and put aside all rancor. His nobles made a great feast, calling for wine and musicians, and this splendid festival has been passed down to us as a memorial to Jamshid. As poetic as Firdausi is here, this is a pretty bare-bones description of a holiday that today is so richly complex. There's no mention of fire jumping at Firdausi, no colored eggs, no Noru's table. As well, unfortunately, Firdausi doesn't get into the specifics of what was served at the noble's great feast. Such as Sabsi Polo Mahi, the fish and rice dish Kamiya described— which is served on so many Persian tables for Noru's today. But tracing the history of Persian cuisine can be difficult, because often it means studying the history of food itself. Consider the location of what was the Persian Empire, located basically smack dab in the middle of the Fertile Crescent, as it is often known, an area which contains some of the oldest traces of human civilization in the world going as far back as the development of agriculture itself. No wonder Ferdosi attributed some of the most basic human inventions to the ancient Persians, and King Jamshid in particular. Ferdosi may not give us much culinary information to go on, but he does get specific with regard to wine. You didn't forget about the wine, did you? Like so many things, Ferdosi attributes the invention of wine to Jamshid. But depending on what version or translation of the story you read, I'm not so sure in this instance alone, we can give the legendary king all the credit. Now, Jamshid, being a mighty semi-divine king and all, of course had built himself a beautiful palace. And one day, as he was relaxing with his courtiers, wandering in the palace gardens, he noticed, in one corner, that a snake had found its way into the garden. Now on any other day... Jamsheed probably wouldn't have minded. But he saw this snake was coiled around a beautiful bird, ready to strike. The bird was still alive, struggling to get free. Jamsheed couldn't bear the thought of the bird's death, so he asked his finest archer, who had been walking with him in the garden, to shoot the snake. The archer took aim, fired, and the bird was free. Immediately, the bird shot into the air— but as it reached the walls of the garden, it turned back towards Jamshid. Hovering before the king, the bird opened its talons, dropping several seeds to the ground. Before Jamshid could act, the beautiful bird flew off, never to be seen again. Tonight on NBC. Well, everyone in the cardiac surgical department, please raise your hands. Thank you. You're all fired.
0: Based on an inspiring true
1: story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated.
0: One doctor will break every
1: rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need
0: to inspire a revolution.
1: Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again.
0: From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC.
2: This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good.
1: So here's a top tip. When a beautiful bird drops seeds at your feet after you've saved its life, you do something with them. The king immediately planted the seeds in the royal garden, and the plants the legs of which no one had ever seen before, grew large and strong. Eventually, berries were spotted on the plants. Large ones, almost clear in color, bursting with juice. The king found the taste of these berries delicious and had all the berries pressed so he could enjoy the juice anytime he wanted. But days later, when he sampled a glass of this mysterious berry juice again, the taste had changed. It had become bitter-tasting and awful. Jamshid was sure it was poisonous. Or was he? Here's where accounts differ a bit. In one story, Jamshid ordered the disgusting stuff destroyed. His courtiers, meanwhile, hid some of the juice away in the pantry, leaving it there for months on end. In another version, it was Jamshid himself who decided to keep the juice hidden away in the pantry, leaving it in an urn marked poisonous so that no one else would touch it. Clearly a tactic that still works on the occasional office-mate or roommate. Anyway, someone decided to keep the juice around for a while. Months passed. Now again, here's where the story gets a little hazy on the details. In one version, one of Jomsheed's wives discovered the secret urn of so-called poison and sampled some herself, discovering how delicious and slightly intoxicating and... Also, how remarkably unpoisonous it was, ruining Jomsheed's secret, but also, meanwhile, introducing humanity to wine. In the other version, the wife had become sick and asked for the courtiers to bring her some of the juice they had hidden away. She drank some and fell into a deep sleep. When she awoke, she was fully healed, causing the entire kingdom to celebrate, planting the seeds everywhere they could. Thus, the beginning of viniculture. It's a great story, but this time for account, whichever version of it you prefer, may have more than a kernel of truth to it. Up until recently, very recently in fact, Persia, or at least the regions broadly within modern Iran, had been considered the cradle of wine drinking, with archaeological traces of viniculture, i.e. wine culture, dating back more than 6,000 years. And the ancient Persian Empire had a global reputation for good wine. King Cyrus the Great of Persia, who lived around 600 to 500 BC, and who pretty much single-handedly founded the empire as he conquered most of Southeast Asia and the Caucasus during his long and fairly successful military career, was famous for his love of wine. I mean, come on. The man was born in Shiraz. Yes, Shiraz. You know, the Iranian city that was so known for wine production in its day, it was considered to be the wine capital of the world. And even now, although the city no longer produces as much wine, several immensely popular grape varietals still bear the name Shiraz, or at the very least a derivative of it. Although, I'll admit, any actual connection to the wine or grapes of Iran is still pretty hotly debated. Anyway, back to Cyrus the Great, wine lover extraordinaire. And apparently a generous man. According to one account, whenever Cyrus on his numerous military campaigns found a wine he liked, he made sure to only drink half of what was served. He would then send on the rest to a friend with a note attached. Quote, for some time, Cyrus has not found a more pleasant wine than this, and he therefore sends some to you begging you to drink it today with those whom you love best. What a nice guy! According to Patrick McGovern, a historian archaeologist who has studied the ancient history of wine, Iranian metalsmiths soon became world-famous for their refined drinking sets, often made entirely in silver and gold. Ancient Persian records describe how five liters of wine were allocated to the royal household every single day day. That's a lot of Shiraz. Details like Cyrus's love of wine or the global impact of Shiraz on wine culture seem pretty concrete as far as the historical record goes. But as far as Jamshid's claim to have invented wine? Alas, it looks like Persia will have to give up its viniculture crown. Recently, in 2017, archaeologists, including Patrick McGovern, found even earlier traces of wine culture than those that had been recovered in Persia. Wine residue was discovered on 8,000-year-old Neolithic pottery shirts, not in Persia, but just a bit further west in the modern country of Georgia. Sorry, Persia. Even today, Georgia still boasts a flourishing wine culture. And recently, the BBC's Food Program dedicated an episode to this rich wine-drinking and wine-making tradition. If you want to learn more about ancient and modern winemaking in Georgia, we'll put a link to the episode on our website at www.thefeastpodcast.org. But let's get back to Persia. After the era of Ferdowsi, Persian poetry flourished, and food was often a popular topic for writers. Without many resources for specific recipes or cookbooks that survived to the modern day, these poems can give us a clue as to what Persian food was like in the medieval and early modern era. The famous Persian poet, Abu Ishaq, who lived in the early 15th century, wrote copiously and often humorously on the topic of food. Take, for example, this food-laden, almost philosophical poem. We are the dough strings of the bowl of wisdom. Sometimes we are the dough and sometimes the pie crust. We came into the kitchen for this purpose, that we might show the fried meat to the pastry. These kinds of poems, which were often satires of other popular poems of their day, help us to see what was on Persian tables, or at the very least, what dishes or ingredients were recognizable to someone reading the poem at the time Abu Ishaq was writing it. The historian and writer Margaret Shaida found many similarities in Abu Ashak's poetry to modern Persian cuisine. Saffron rice or thick soup, kebabs, fresh herbs with bread—these were dishes Abu Ashak wrote about, and still can be found in some way, shape, or form on many modern Persian tables. Abu Ashak even talked about polo, the cooked, flavored rice that is the basis of that iconic Noruz dish Kimiya described here's that same iconic Noruz dish as described by Nushi, a combination of rice, saffron, and fish, all ingredients that may have been just as familiar to Abu Ishaq over five hundred years ago.
0: We have some traditional food to eat and that the main one is uh, rice with weewied green herbs, like variety of uh, herbs which give the food like a sublime flavor, served with fried fish. We serve it with a big pinch of saffron. The other food is, we call it kuku sabzi. It's a Persian style like egg dish, similar to like an open-faced omelet with flavored with various of herbs again. And again, we have resh de polo. It's aromatic, nice, with toasted noodles layered with meat and, uh, like, gently uh, steamed in the traditional, like, Iranian way. Uh, we call it polo, <laughs> yeah. And the result is a fluffy uh, and incomparably delicious one.
1: Polo, the iconic Persian method of cooking and flavoring rice, is thought to be the basis, or at least the distant grandfather, of the Turkish word pilav, which, of course gave us the modern English pilaf, a.k.a. cooked, flavored rice. Yet again, a thousand-year-old or more culinary history in a single word. Or cooking style, as the case may be. We could spend much more time on the foods of Noruz, but it's important to remember that the food of this holiday serves as a backdrop to a time of year when friends and family can get together, relax, and enjoy each other's company. Here's Camille again.
2: Food is a big part of Noruz and our culture, but more than that, it's about people coming together and just hanging out, just friends seeing each other. I remember when I was younger, I didn't see some of my family members for a year, and we saw each other once a year on Noruz. So that's pretty much, like, the big thing about it is people coming together, even if there isn't food. Like, Noruz is the one event where we give up food and we still go to see each other even if there's no food. So that's pretty much it, yeah.
1: If you'd like to make some of the foods we've mentioned today on the episode, such as polo or some other iconic Noruz dishes, we'll put some links to recipes up on the website. Just last week, Mike and I made a version of traditional chickpea flour cookies, which are flavored with cardamom and rose water topped with pistachios. They're delicious. So we'll put up a recipe for those, along with some savory dishes as well. We'll also put a link up to Patrick McGovern's book on the history of wine, called Ancient Wine, The Search for the Origins of Viniculture. Just keep in mind, the book came out before the discovery of those wine-soaked potsherds in Georgia. And if you want to learn more about that, we'll put a link to some of the news stories from 2017 that talk about Georgia's new claim to fame as the oldest winemaking region in the world. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson, with technical direction by Mike Port. Research and production help by Leslie Jones, a freelance researcher and writer, owner of the company Food Words. Check out her work at Foodwords.ca. A huge thank you to our guests for this episode, Kamia Ziafat and Manush Zamari, as well as the University of British Columbia Persian Club. Kamia and Nushi were kind enough to take the time to talk to me, basically right in the middle of the Noru's holiday. So a huge thank you again to them both. Music featured today included work by Jazar, Sonny Venturum, Costa, and Peter Rudenko. You can find out more about all these great artists on our website at thefeastpodcast.org. And that's all for us this week. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more meals that made history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast.
2: The Podglomer, A Sonic Universe.